Chapter Six, Part Three of the Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Eva M. Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ali Mackie. Chapter Six. I will not deceive you. Reality got me so entrapped in its meshes now and again during the past six months that I forgot my sentence, or perhaps I did not wish to think of it, and actually busied myself with affairs. As a word to my circumstances, when eight months since I became very ill, I threw up all my old connections and dropped all my old companions. As I was always a gloomy, morose sort of individual, my friends easily forgot me. Of course, they would have forgot me all the same without that excuse. My position at home was solitary enough. Five months ago, I separated myself entirely from the family, and no one dared enter my room except at stated times to clean and tidy it, and so on and to bring me my meals my mother dared not disobey me she kept the children quiet for my sake and beat them if they dared to make any noise and disturb me i so often complained of them that i should think they must be very fond indeed of me by this time i think i must have tormented my faithful collier as i called him a good deal too he tormented me of late i could see that he always bore my tempers as though he had determined to spare the poor invalid this annoyed me naturally he seemed to have taken it into his head to imitate the prince in christian meekness surikoff who had lived above us annoyed me too he was so miserably poor and i used to prove to him that he had no one to blame but himself for his poverty i used to be so angry that i think i frightened him eventually for he stopped coming to see me he was a most meek and humble fellow was surikoff and b they say that meekness is a great power i must ask the prince about this for the expression is his but i remember one day in march when i went up to his lodgings to see whether it was true that one of his children had been starved and frozen to death i began to hold forth to him about his poverty being his own fault and in the course of my remarks i accidentally smiled at the corpse of his child while the poor wretch's lips began to tremble and he caught me by the shoulder and pushed me to the door go out he said in a whisper i went out of course and i declared i liked it i liked it at the very moment when i was turned out but his words filled me with a strange feeling of disdainful pity for him whenever i thought of them a feeling which i did not in the least desire to entertain at the very moment of the insult for i admit that i did insult him though i did not mean to this man could not lose his temper his lips had trembled but i swear it was not with rage he had taken me by the arm and said go out without the least anger there was dignity a great deal of dignity about him and it was so inconsistent with the look of him that i assured you it was quite comical but there was no anger perhaps he merely began to despise me at that moment since that time he had always taken off his hat to me on the stairs whenever i met him which is a thing he never did before but he always gets away from me as quickly as he can as though he felt confused if he did despise me he despised me meekly after his own fashion i dare say he only took his hat off out of fear as it were to the son of his creditor for he always owed my mother money i thought of having an explanation with him but i knew that if i did he would begin to apologize in a minute or two so i decided to let him alone just about that time that is in the middle of march i suddenly felt very much better this continued for a couple of weeks i used to go out at dusk like the dusk especially in march when the night frost begins to harden the day's puddles and the gas is burning 
well one night in shestilavoshnaya a man passed me with a paper parcel under his arm i did not take stock of him very carefully but he seemed to be dressed in some shabby summer dust coat much too light for the season when he was opposite the lamp-post some ten yards away i observed something fall out of his pocket i hurried forward to pick it up just in time for an old wretch in a long kaftan rushed up too he did not dispute the matter but glanced at what was in my hand and disappeared it was a large old-fashioned pocket-book stuffed full but i guessed at a glance that it had anything in the world inside it except money the owner was now some forty yards ahead of me and was very soon lost in the crowd i ran after him and began calling out but as i knew nothing to say excepting hey he did not turn around suddenly he turned into the gate of a house to the left and when i darted in after him the gateway was so dark that i could see nothing whatever it was one of those large houses built in small tenements of which there must have been at least a hundred when i entered the yard i thought i saw a man going along on the far side of it but it was so dark i could not make out his figure i crossed to that corner and found a dirty dark staircase i heard a man mounting up above me some way higher than i was and thinking i should catch him before his door would be opened to him i rushed after him i heard the door open and shut on the fifth story as i panted along the stairs were narrow the steps innumerable but at least i reached the door i thought the right one some moments passed before i found the bell and got it to ring an old peasant woman opened the door she was busy lighting the samovar in the tiny kitchen she listened silently to my question did not understand a word of course and opened another door leading into a little bit of a room low and scarcely furnished at all but with a large wide bed in it hung with curtains on this bed lay one tarantich as the woman called him drunk it appeared to me on the table was an end of candle in an iron candlestick and half a bottle of vodka nearly finished tarantich muttered something to me and signed towards the next room the old woman had disappeared so there was nothing for me to do but to open the door indicated i did so and entered the next room this was still smaller than the other so cramped that i could scarcely turn around a narrow single bed at one side took up nearly all the room besides the bed there were only three common chairs and a wretched old kitchen-table standing before a small sofa one could hardly squeeze through between the table and the bed on the table as in the other room burned a tallow candle and in an iron candlestick and on the bed there whined a baby of scarcely three weeks old a pale-looking woman was dressing the child probably the mother she looked as though she had not yet got over the trouble of childbirth she seemed so weak and so carelessly dressed another child a little girl of about three years old lay on the sofa covered with what looked like an old man's dress-coat at the table stood a man in his shirt-sleeves he had thrown off his coat it lay upon the bed and he was folding a blue paper parcel in which were a couple of pounds of bread and some little sausages on the table along with these things were a few old bits of black bread and some tea in a pot from under the bed there protruded an open portmanteau full of bundles of rags in a word the confusion and untidiness of the room were indescribable it appeared to me at the first glance that both the man and the woman were respectable people but brought to that pitch of poverty where untidiness seems to get the better of every effort to cope with it till at last they take a sort of bitter satisfaction in it when i entered the room the man who had entered but a moment before me was still unpacking his parcels was saying something to his wife in an excited manner 
The news was apparently bad as usual, for the woman began whimpering. The man's face seemed to me to be refined and even pleasant. He was dark-complexioned and about twenty-eight years of age. He wore black whiskers, and his lip and chin were shaved. He looked morose, but with a sort of pride of expression. A curious scene followed. There are people who find satisfaction in their own touchy feelings, especially when they have just taken the deepest offence. At such moments they feel that they would rather be offended than not. These easily ignited natures, if they are wise, they are always full of remorse afterwards, when they reflect that they have been ten times as angry as they need have been. The gentleman before me gazed at me for some seconds in amazement, and his wife in terror, as though there was something alarmingly extraordinary in the fact that anyone could come to see them but suddenly he fell upon me almost with fury i had no time to mutter more than a couple of words but he had doubtless observed that i was decently dressed and therefore took deep offence because i had dared to enter his den so unceremoniously and spy out the squalor and untidiness of it of course he was delighted to get hold of someone upon whom to vent his rage against things in general for a moment i thought he would assault me he grew so pale that he looked like a woman about to have hysterics his wife was dreadfully alarmed how dare you come in so be off he shouted trembling all over with rage and scarcely able to articulate the words suddenly however he observed his pocket-book in my hand i think you dropped this i remarked as quietly and as dryly as i could i thought it best to treat him so for some while he stood before me in downright and seemed unable to understand he then suddenly grabbed at his side-pocket opened his mouth in alarm and beat his forehead with his hand my god he cried where did you find it how I explained in a few words as I could, and as dryly as possible, how I had seen it and picked it up, how I had run after him and called out to him, and how I had followed him upstairs and groped my way to his door. Gracious heaven, he cried, all our papers are in it. My dear sir, you little know what you have done for us. I should have been lost, lost. I had taken hold of the door meanwhile, intending to leave the room without reply, but I was panting with my run upstairs and my exhaustion came to a climax in a violent fit of coughing so bad that I could hardly stand. I saw how the man dashed about the room and find me an empty chair, how he kicked the rags off a chair which was covered up by them, brought it to me and helped me to sit down. But my cough went on for three minutes or so. When I came to myself, he was sitting by me on another chair, which he also had cleared of the rubbish by throwing it all over the floor, and was watching me intently. "'I'm afraid you're ill,' he remarked, in a tone doctors use when they address a patient. "'I myself a medical man.' He did not say doctor." with which words he waved his hands toward the room and its contents as though in protest at his present condition i see that you-i am in consumption i said laconically rising from my seat he jumped up too perhaps you are exaggerating if you were to take proper measures perhaps he was terribly confused and did not seem able to collect his scattered senses the pocket-book was still in his left hand oh don't mind me i said dr b saw me last week i lugged him in again and my hash is quite settled pardon me i took hold of the door-handle again i was on the point of opening the door and leaving my grateful but confused medical friend to himself and his shame when my damnable cough got hold of me again my doctor insisted on my sitting down again to get my breath he now said something to his wife who without leaving her place addressed a few words of gratitude and courtesy to me she seemed very shy over it and her sickly face flushed up with confusion i remained but with the air of a man who knows he is intruding and is anxious to get away 
the doctor's remorse at last seemed to need a vent i could see if i he began breaking off abruptly every other moment and starting another sentence i'm i am very so grateful to you and i am so much to blame in your eyes i feel sure i you see he pointed to the room again at this moment i am in such a position oh i said there is nothing to see it's quite a clear case you've lost your post and have come up to make explanations and get another if you can how do you know that he asked in amazement oh it was evident in the first glance i said ironically but not intentionally so there are lots of people who come up from the provinces full of hope and run about town and have to live as best as they can he began to talk at once excitedly with trembling lips he began complaining and telling me his story he interested me i confess i sat there nearly an hour his story was a very ordinary one he had been a provincial doctor he had a civil appointment he had no sooner taken it up than intrigues began even his wife was dragged into this he was proud and flew into passion there was a change of local government which acted in favour of his opponents his position was undermined complaints were made against him he lost his post and came up to petersburg with his last remaining money in order to appeal to higher authorities of course nobody would listen to him for a long time he would come and tell his story one day and be refused promptly another day he would be fed on false promises again he would be treated harshly then he would be told to sign some documents then he would sign the paper and hand it in and they would refuse to receive it and tell him to file a formal petition in a word he had been driven about from office to office for five months and had spent every farthing he had his wife's last rags had been pawned and meanwhile a child had been born to them and to-day i have a final refusal to my petition and i have hardly a crumb of bread left i have nothing left my wife has had a baby lately and i-i he sprang up from his chair and turned away his wife was crying in the corner the child had begun to moan again i pulled out my notebook and began writing in it when i had finished and rose from my chair he was standing before me with an expression of alarmed curiosity i have jotted down your name i told him and all the rest of it the place you've served the district the date and all i have a friend bakhmatov whose uncle is a councillor of state and has to do with these matters one peter matveyech bakhmatov peter matveyech bakhmatov he cried trembling all over with excitement why nearly everything depends on that very man it is very curious the story of the medical man and my visit and the happy termination to which i contributed by accident everything fitted in as in a novel i told the poor people not to put much hope in me because i was but a poor schoolboy myself i'm not really but i humiliated myself as much as possible in order to make them less hopeful but that i would go at once to the vasily ostrov and see my friend and that i knew for certain that his uncle adored him and was absolutely devoted to him as the last hope and branch of the family perhaps the old man might do something to oblige his nephew if only they would allow me to explain all to his excellency if i could be permitted to tell my tale to him he cried trembling with feverish agitation and his eyes flashing with excitement i repeated once more that i could not hold out much hope that it would probably end in smoke and if i did not turn up the next morning they must make up their minds that there was no more to be done in the matter they showed me out with bows and every kind of respect they seemed quite beside themselves i shall never forget the expression of their faces i took a droshky and drove over to the vasily ostrov at once for some years i had been an enmity with this young bakhmatov at school we considered him an aristocrat at all events i called him one 
he used to dress smartly and always drove to school in a private trap sometimes even witty though he was not very intellectual in spite of the fact that he was always the top of the class i myself was never a top of anything he had several times during those years come up to me and tried to make friends but i had always turned sulkily away and refused to have anything to do with him i had not seen him for a whole year now he was at the university when at nine o'clock or so this evening i arrived and was shown up to him with great ceremony he received me with astonishment and not too affably but he soon cheered up and suddenly gazed intently at me and burst out laughing why what on earth can have possessed you to come and see me terentiev he cried with his usual pleasant sometimes audacious but never offensive familiarity which i liked in reality but for which i also detested him why what's the matter he cried in alarm are you ill that confounded cough of mine had come again i fell into a chair and with difficulty recovered my breath it's all right it's only consumption i said i have come to you with a petition he sat down in amazement and i lost no time in telling him the medical man's history and explained that he with the influence which he possessed over his uncle might do some good to the poor fellow i'll do it i'll do it of course he said i shall attack my uncle about it to-morrow morning and i'm very glad he told me the story but how was it that you thought of coming to me about it terentiev so much depends upon your uncle i said and besides we have always been enemies bakhmatov and as you are a generous sort of fellow i thought you would not refuse my request because i was your enemy i added with irony like napoleon going to england eh cried he laughing i'll do it though of course and at once if i can he added seeing that i rose furiously from my chair at this point and sure enough the matter ended as satisfactorily as possible a month or so later my medical friend was appointed to another post he got his travelling expenses paid and something to help him to start life with once more i think bakhmatov must have persuaded the doctor to accept a loan from himself i saw bakhmatov two or three times about this period the third time being when he gave a farewell dinner to the doctor and his wife before their departure a champagne dinner bakhmatov saw me home after dinner and we crossed the nikolai bridge we were both a little drunk he told me of his joy the joyful feeling of having done a good action he said that it was all thanks to myself that he could feel this satisfaction and held forth about the foolishness of the theory that individual charity is useless i too was burning to have my say in moscow i said there was an old state councillor a civil general who all his life had been in the habit of visiting the prisons and speaking to criminals every party of convicts in its way to siberia knew beforehand that on the vorobief hills the old general paid them a visit he did all he undertook seriously and devotedly he would walk down the rows of the unfortunate prisoners stop before each individual and ask after his needs he never sermonized them he spoke kindly to them he gave them money he brought them all sorts of necessaries for the journey and gave them devotional books choosing those who could read under the firm conviction that they would read to those who could not as they went along he scarcely ever talked about the particular crimes of any of them but he listened if any volunteered information on that point all the convicts were equal for him and he made no distinction he spoke to all as to brothers and every one of them looked upon him as a father 
when he observed among the exiles some poor woman with a child he would always come forward and fondle the little one and make it laugh he continued these acts of mercy up to his very death and by that time all the criminals all over russia and siberia knew him a man i knew who had been to siberia and returned told me that he himself had been a witness of how the most hardened criminals remembered the old general though in point of fact he could never of course have distributed more than a few pence to each member of the party their recollection of him was not sentimental or particularly devoted some wretch for instance who had been a murderer cutting the throat of a dozen fellow-creatures for instance or stabbing six little children for his own amusement there have been such men would perhaps without rhyme or reason suddenly give a sigh and say i wonder whether that old general is still alive although perhaps he had not thought of mentioning him for a dozen years before how can one say what seed of good may have been dropped into his soul never to die i continued in that strain for a while pointing out to bakhmatov how impossible it is to follow up the effects of any isolated good deed one may do in all its influences and subtle workings upon the heart and the after actions of others and to think that you are to be cut off from life remarked bakhmatov in a tone of reproach as though he would like to find someone to pitch into on my account we were leaning over the balustrade of the bridge looking into the neva at this moment do you know what has suddenly come into my head said i suddenly leaning further and further over the rail surely not to throw yourself into the river cried bakhmatov in alarm perhaps he read my thought in my face no not yet at present nothing but the following consideration you see i have some two or three months left in me to live perhaps four well supposing that when i have but a month or two more i take a fancy for some good deed that needs both trouble and time like this business of our doctor friend for instance why i shall have to give up the idea of it and take to something else some little good deed more within my means eh isn't that an amusing idea poor bakhmatov was much impressed painfully so he took me all the way home not attempting to console me but behaving with the greatest delicacy on taking leave he pressed my hand warmly and asked permission to come and see me i replied that if he came to me as a comforter so to speak for he would be in that capacity whether he spoke to me in a soothing manner or only kept silence as i pointed out to him he would remind me each time of my approaching death he shrugged his shoulders but quite agreed with me and we parted better friends than i expected but that evening and the night were sown the first seeds of my last conviction i seized greedily on my new idea i thirstily drank in all its different aspects i did not sleep a wink that night and the deeper i went into it the more my being seemed to merge itself in it and the more alarmed i became a dreadful terror came over me at last and did not leave me all next day sometimes thinking over this i became quite numb with the terror of it i might well have deduced from this fact that my last conviction was eating into my being too fast and too seriously and would undoubtedly come to its climax before long and for the climax i needed greater determination than i yet possessed however within three weeks my determination was taken owing to a very strange circumstance here on my paper i make a note of all the figures and dates that come into my explanation 
of course it is all the same to me but just now and perhaps only at this moment i desire that all those who are to judge my actions should see clearly out of how logical a sequence of deductions has at length preceded my last conviction i have said above that the determination needed by me for the accomplishment of my final resolve came to hand not through any sequence of causes but thanks to a certain strange circumstance which had perhaps no connection whatever with the matter at issue ten days ago rogozhin called upon me about certain business of his own with which i have nothing to do at present i had never seen rogozhin before but had often heard about him i gave him all the information he needed and he very soon took his departure so that since he only came for the purpose of gaining the information the matter might have been expected to end there but he interested me too much and all that day i was under the influence of strange thoughts connected with him and i determined to return his visit the next day rogozhin was evidently by no means pleased to see me and hinted delicately that he saw no reason why our acquaintance should continue for all that however i spent a very interesting hour and so i dare say did he there was so great a contrast between us that i am sure we must both have felt it anyhow i felt it acutely here i was with my days numbered and he a man in the full vigour of life living in the present without the slightest thought of final convictions or numbers or days or in fact for anything but that which which well which he was mad about if he will excuse me the expression and as a feeble author who cannot express his ideas properly in spite of his lack of amiability i could not help seeing in rogozhin a man of intellect and sense and although perhaps there was little in the outside world which was of interest to him still he was clearly a man with eyes to see i hinted nothing to him about my final conviction but it appeared to me that he had guessed it from my words he remained silent he is a terribly silent man i remarked to him as i rose to depart that in spite of the contrast and the wide difference between us two les extremites c'est au champ extremes meet as i explained to him in russian so that maybe he was not so far from my final conviction as appeared his only reply to this was a sour grimace he rose and looked for my cap and placed it in my hand and let me out of the house that dreadful gloomy house of his to all appearances of course as though i were leaving of my own accord and he were simply seeing me to the door out of politeness his house impressed me much it is like a burial ground he seems to like it which is however quite natural such a full life as he leads is so overflowing with absorbing interest that he has little need of assistance from his surroundings the visit to rogozhin exhausted me terribly besides i had felt ill since the morning and by evening i was so weak that i took to my bed and was in high fever at intervals and even delirious kolya sat with me until eleven o'clock yet i remember all he talked about and every word we said though whenever my eyes closed for a moment i could picture nothing but the image of surikoff just in the act of finding a million roubles he could not make up his mind what to do with the money and tore his hair over it he trembled with fear that somebody would rob him and at last he decided to bury it in the ground i persuaded him that instead of putting it all away uselessly underground he had better melt it down and make a golden coffin out of it for his starved child and then dig up the little one and put her into the golden coffin surikoff accepted the suggestion i thought with tears of gratitude and immediately commenced to carry out my design i thought i spat on the ground and left him in disgust 
Colia told me, when I quite recovered my senses, that I had not been asleep for a moment, but that I had spoken to him about Surikov the whole while. At moments I was in a state of dreadful weakness and misery, so that Colia was greatly disturbed when he left me. When I rose to lock the door after him, I suddenly recalled to mind a picture I had noticed at Rogozhin's in one of his gloomiest rooms over the door. He had pointed it out to me himself as we walked past it and I believe I must have stood a good five minutes in front of it. There was nothing artistic about it, but the picture made me feel strangely uncomfortable. It represented Christ just taken down from the cross. It seems to me that painters as a rule represent the Saviour, both on the cross and taken down from it, with great beauty still upon his face, this marvellous beauty they strive to preserve even in his moments of deepest agony and passion but there was no such beauty in rogozhin's picture there was the presentiment of a poor mangled body which had evidently suffered unbearable anguish even before its crucifixion full of wounds and bruises marks of the violence of soldiers and people and of the bitterness of the moment when he had fallen with the cross all this combined with the anguish of the actual crucifixion the face was depicted as though still suffering as though the body only just dead was still almost quivering with agony the picture was one of pure nature for the face was not beautified by the artist but was left as it would naturally be whosoever the sufferer after such anguish i know that the earliest christian faith taught that the saviour suffered actually and not figuratively and that nature was allowed her own way even while his body was on the cross it is strange to look on this dreadful picture of the mangled corpse of the saviour and to put this question to oneself supposing that the disciples the future apostles the women who had followed him and stood by the cross all of whom believed and worshipped him supposing that they saw this tortured body this face so mangled and bleeding and bruised and they must have seen it so how could they have gazed upon the dreadful sight and yet have believed that he would rise again the thought steps in whether one likes it or not that death is so terrible and so powerful that even he who conquered it in his miracles during life was unable to triumph over it at the last he who called to lazarus lazarus come forth and the dead man lived he was now himself a prey to nature and death nature appears to one looking at this picture as some huge implacable dumb monster or still better a stranger simile some enormous mechanical engine of modern days which has seized and crushed and swallowed up a great and invaluable being a being worth nature and all her laws worth the whole earth which was perhaps created merely for the sake of the advent of that being this blind dumb implacable eternal unreasoning force is well shown in the picture and the absolute subordination of all men and things to it is so well expressed that the idea unconsciously arises in the mind of any one who looks at it all those faithful people who were gazing at the cross and its mutilated occupant must have suffered agony of mind that evening for they must have felt that all their hopes and almost all their faith had been shattered at a blow they must have separated in terror and dread that night though though each perhaps carried away with him one great thought which was never eradicated from his mind for ever afterwards if this great teacher of theirs could have seen himself after the crucifixion how could he have consented to mount the cross and to die as he did 
this thought also comes to the mind of the man who gazes at this picture i thought of all this by the snatches and probably between my attacks of delirium for an hour and a half or so before colia's departure can there be an appearance of that which has no form and yet it seemed to me at certain moments that i beheld in some strange and impossible form that dark dumb irresistibly powerful eternal force i thought some one led me by the hand and showed me by the light of a candle a huge loathsome insect which he assured me was that very force that very almighty dumb irresistible power and laughed at the indignation with which i received this information in my room they always light the little lamp before my icon for the night it gives a feeble flicker of light but it is strong enough to see by dimly and if you sit just under it you can even read by it i think it was about twelve or a little past that night i had not slept a wink and was lying with my eyes wide open when suddenly the door opened and came in rogojin he entered and shut the door behind him then he silently gazed at me and went quickly to the corner of the room where the lamp was burning and sat down underneath it i was much surprised and looked at him expectantly rogojin only leaned his elbow on the table and silently stared at me so passed two or three minutes and i recollect that this silence hurt and offended me very much why did he not speak that his arrival at this time of night struck me as more or less strange may possibly be the case but i remember i was by no means amazed at it on the contrary though i had not actually told him my thought in the morning yet i know he understood it and this thought was of such a character that it would not be anything very remarkable if one were to come for further talk about it at any hour of the night however late i thought he must have come for this purpose in the morning we had parted not the best of friends i remember he looked at me with disagreeable sarcasm once or twice and this same look i observed in his eyes now which was the cause of the annoyance i felt i did not for a moment suspect that i was delirious and that this rogojin was but the result of fever and excitement i had not the slightest idea of such a theory at first meanwhile he continued to sit and stare jeeringly at me i angrily turned round in bed and made up my mind that i would not say a word unless he did so i rested silently on my pillow determined to remain dumb if it were to last till morning i felt resolved that he should speak first probably twenty minutes or so passed in this way suddenly the idea struck me what if this is an apparition and not rogojin himself neither during my illness nor at any previous time had i ever seen an apparition but i had always thought both when i was a little boy and even now that if i were to see one i should die on the spot though i don't believe in ghosts and yet now when the idea struck me that this was a ghost and not rogojin at all i was not in the least alarmed nay the thought actually irritated me strangely enough the decision of the question as to whether this were a ghost or a gojin or not for some reason or other interested me nearly so much as it ought to have done i think i began to muse about something altogether different for instance i began to wonder why rogojin who had been in dressing-gown and slippers when i saw him at home had now put on a dress-coat and white waistcoat and tie i also thought to myself i remember if this is a ghost and i am not afraid of it why don't i approach it and verify my suspicions perhaps i am afraid and no sooner did this last idea enter my head than an icy blast blew over me i felt a chill down my backbone and my knees shook 
at this very moment as though divining my thoughts rogozhin raised his head from his arm and began to part his lips as though he were going to laugh but he continued to stare at me as persistently as before i felt so furious with him at this moment that i longed to rush at him but as i had sworn that he should speak first i continued to lie still and the more willingly as i was still by no means satisfied as to whether it was really rogozhin or not i cannot remember how long this lasted i cannot recollect either whether consciousness forsook me at intervals or not but at last rogozhin rose staring at me as intently as ever but not smiling any longer and walking very softly almost on tiptoes to the door he opened it went out and shut it behind him i did not rise from my bed and i don't know how long i lay with my eyes open thinking i don't know what i thought about nor how i fell asleep or became insensible but i woke next morning after nine o'clock when they knocked at my door my general orders are that if i don't open the door and call by nine o'clock matryona is to come and bring my tea when i now open the door to her the thought suddenly struck me how could he have come in since the door was locked i made inquiries and found that rogozhin himself could not possibly have come in because all our doors were locked for the night well this strange circumstance which i have described with so much detail was the ultimate cause which led me to take in my final determination so that no logic or logical deductions had anything to do with my resolve it was simply a matter of disgust it was impossible for me to go on living when life was full of such detestable strange tormenting forms this ghost had humiliated me nor could i bear to be subordinate to that dark horrible force which was embodied in the form of loathsome insect it was only towards evening when i had quite made up my mind on this point that it began to feel easier End of chapter six part three